Hey, this is Michael Cavanaugh from Broadway's Moving Out, and you're listening to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. After 1993's River of Dreams, fans waited and wondered if Billy Joel would ever release another pop album. The answer, as we know now, turned out to be no. But, nearly a decade after that release, we saw a new development for Billy's music. The first years of the new century saw three new releases that featured Billy Joel's music, but without him playing on two of them. In 2001, Sony Music released the two-disc Essential Billy Joel. But in terms of new music, Billy also released Fantasies and Delusions that year. It premiered music that Billy had written in the style of 19th century romanticism. Then came the award-winning Broadway production Movin' Out in 2002, which strung many of his hit songs around a loose dance-based narrative. The style of these two projects are very different, but they share a common thread. Both feature other musicians interpreting Billy's music. In Movin' Out, Michael Cavanaugh led the pit band through hundreds of sold-out shows, and the Fantasies and Delusions recordings were arranged and performed by classical pianist Hyung Ki Joo. What changes when other piano players perform Billy's music? What elements shine through? And what's it like to be tasked with performing music written by one of the most popular recording artists of the 20th century? In a special two-part series, we are asking just that, and we're going right to the sources. This episode features a new interview with Michael Cavanaugh about his Broadway experience. And stay tuned for the second installment featuring our conversation with Hyung Ki Ju. Join us as we dig deep into the music of Billy Joel with two players who learned and interpreted the pieces. They say the thieves are not the best of times they're the only times I've ever known. All right, let's just jump right in. <laughs> See, what you people don't know is we've been trying to do that goddamn intro for an hour. You're welcome. <laughs> You're <are> all welcome. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Man, you know, we made the mistake of saying, oh, it'll be a, just a couple pickup recording bits tonight. It'll be fast. No problem. No problem. Well, we're an hour in and we're just getting about 30 seconds worth of recorded audio. <laughs> I'm going to go upstairs and my kids will have grown three inches. But let me tell you, man, it's, it's worth it. This episode and the companion episode, which will come out pretty soon. It's, it won't be the one right after this, but it's going to come after that. Originally, we were going to do one episode featuring two quick interviews, one with Michael Cavanaugh, one with Hyung Ki Joo. These two conversations were so phenomenal and so in-depth that we, we had to make this a two-part series because there was almost no fat to be trimmed off. No questions that led to dead ends. No duds of stories. Everything was awesome. Not to toot our horns, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. With our material, Jack and I will typically talk for a couple hours and whittle it down to something a little more concise and a narrative that's easier to digest. Once we got through both of these conversations, like Jack said, it was so robust that they really deserve to stand on their own, even though they're linked together in this way. And they were both such a pleasure to talk to, some incredible stories I'd never heard, and uh, some hilarious moments throughout. I-, I just can't wait to dive into these. Yeah, yeah, this is great. So let's talk about moving out for a quick second. It's going to get its own episode at some point, but it's worth um, discussing real quick here. And we've talked about it uh, in earlier episodes as well. So there were over 1,300 performances. It was choreographed by Twyla Tharp. And as we said in the intro, you know, it took a handful of Billy's most popular songs and strung them together to kind of form a story based around Twyla Tharp's choreography. And this is when these sort of jukebox musicals were beginning to come into fashion. 
you had the Four Seasons, you had ABBA, you had Springsteen, although I think Springsteen's didn't stay on as long. But he came back to Broadway on his own a couple of years ago, so that is what it is. Right. <laughs> oh, and Green Day too. But what was really interesting about this one were the people in the pit. So you had Tommy Burns, who had been playing with Billy for years at that point, drummer Chuck Berge, who would go on to play with Billy after that, and the sound engineer was Brian Ruggles, who was also Billy's longtime sound engineer. But around that, you had Michael Cavanaugh, a hitherto unknown piano player, relatively speaking, at the time. He got tasked with the mantle of taking these songs and performing them arguably more times in that span than Billy himself probably performed them. So, you know, you got a guy that's not a Broadway person, not an actor, not from the theater world, and not only does he have to throw himself into this new medium, but he also has to sort of be Billy Joel, but not actually be Billy Joel. And it's kind of a tight wire act. It's certainly a unique situation to be in. Michael did an incredible job with the music and the playing. And I think the smartest decision he made was to be himself. Because I think if he was really going to try to be a Billy sound alike, there's no winning in that situation. So I think right, yeah. he really wanted to do the material justice, certainly, but he made sure he was himself up there. And he did such a good job with it that after Moving Out was done, he's mounted other music programs, the songs of Billy Joel and Moore and the music of Billy Joel and Moore that he's done with orchestras playing alongside a rock ensemble. And he's going to tell us all about those. And I really enjoyed some of the behind the scenes stuff we got here. A lot of the the technical stuff. I'm always a fan of the shop talk. I am as well. And, you know, I want to circle back around to your point about playing those songs more than Billy even. A lot of people don't realize what a grind Broadway is. You know, mm -hmm. when you're touring in a band, typically you're playing one show a night, sometimes five days a week, sometimes more, oftentimes less. But with Broadway, Broadway is going on seven days a week, two shows a day, typically, especially on the weekends. No break, no time off, no nothing from start to finish. Mm -hmm. So it is a lot of work. I imagine it'd be tough for any seasoned touring and rock musician to be able to get through that and have their chops and their voice survive. That's quite a feat. What's the move? But hey, oh, a spinal tap. But hey, enough of my yakking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, right, right. So we could go on and on about how great it was talking to him, but I think the best thing to do would just be to cut right to it because uh, Michael was so fantastic and we can't wait for you guys to hear it. So here's our conversation with Michael Cavanaugh. So we're here today with Michael Cavanaugh. Michael, thanks so much for speaking with us. Absolutely, man. Good to be here. Most Billy Joel fans know you from Moving Out. So to start out, can you tell us a little bit about your career as a musician prior to Moving Out? Yeah, I mean, I started very, very young. I grew up in the Cleveland, Ohio area suburbs. From the first time I saw Kiss in concert, I was seven years old, I saw Kiss. I was like, that's what wow. I want to do. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I had three older brothers, so they were going and I begged my parents, please, can I go? And my dad had to go with me. We sat in the last row, but it changed my life. But by the time I was 12, I was in a band with my older brother, and we had a we had a band, and we were getting paying gigs. You know, we were doing weddings and VFWs. And actually, I played in a bar the first time when I was 12. And by the time I was 13, I was playing in bars like three nights a week. By the time I was 14, it was more like four or five nights a week. So I was just going at it all the time. And when I got to be around 22, I think, uh, my wife and I, we moved down to Florida, and I became a dueling piano bar guy for a while. That was really big in the 90s, but it was, that was a very different angle. It was, it was more about learning how to really work a crowd, you know, and it was less technical musically, but it was, it was what I was needing at that point. When I was 18, 19 years old, I was worried about everything being perfect musically, but I was like stone-faced, and people would be like, you don't even look like you're having fun. And I was, but I didn't know how to show it. So the dueling piano world was good for me. It was, it was like a boot camp for me to learn how to, you know, really entertain. Yeah. And then I was doing that still. I, I did it in Orlando and then I moved to Vegas, which is where I live now. And I uh, was doing the dueling piano thing at New York, New York. And that's when I met Max Lubier and that's when everything changed. I'm sure a lot of these people know who Max is, but Max is Billy Joel's tour manager 
and uh, has been for, since I think, since like 89 for a long time. So how did that meeting uh, come together with Max? Max and I had a mutual friend. I was working with a guy named Dean Gordon from England. And him and Max became friends through one of Billy's friends. Have you guys ever met a guy named Rupert Keegan? I know the name. He's one of Billy's longtime friends, and he was a Formula One race car driver. He's hilarious. He is like real life Austin Powers. That's the best way I can describe him. <laughs> like, seriously. Like, oh, funny. Like, and, and I'll do a little side story. One of the first nights I met Billy Joel, we were having dinner at the Four Seasons here in Vegas after his show. I was sitting with Rupert and with Billy, and Mike Myers walks in the room. And he's coming to the table to, to meet Billy. <laughs> Billy says to Rupert, if you embarrass me, I'm going to kill you. Because literally, he, <laughs> he says things like, oh, behave. Like, he's, he's been saying that for decades, this guy, right. Rupert. So anyway, um, so Rupert was a friend of, of my manager at the time, Dean Gordon. And he was also a friend of Max and Billy. So when Billy was in town for some sort of corporate event, I think, probably late 2000, Max and Dean met. Max was looking to do more projects with some other artists. So Dean said, I got this guy named Michael Cavanaugh. Would you come back to Vegas maybe in a couple months and meet him and hear him? So Max did, and he heard me. We got along great, and he really liked me. And it was a couple months after that. It was actually Valentine's Day 2001. The Valentine's Day thing. That's right. We just had an anniversary, didn't we? Of, we did. Of the, of the night I met Billy Joel. Um, mm -hmm. I was 20 years. Uh, I got a call from Max saying that he was going to bring he was going to bring Billy to the piano bar and I was obviously losing my mind I was freaking out cuz it was about 15 no minutes before I was oh it was crazy it was nuts yeah. right <laughs> so it was about 15 minutes before I was going to go to work and I was panicking and everything but luckily I got myself together by the time I met him I'm told to go to the the back like where they load stuff in at the casino not the main entrance and and I go back there and Billy's car pulls up and he gets out and there he is you know <laughs> And uh, so I stick up my hand and I think I said, blah, 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 blah. and uh, he was like, hey, relax. Are you Mike? Nice to meet you. And we were talking and he was making me feel comfortable right away, actually. Uh, he was he was really good with that. So we're walking towards a piano bar and he had no idea what kind of place it was. You know, he didn't know if we were going to be playing furry lease or, or whatever, you know, like some sort of he had no idea. So we're, he comes in and. The first thing I play is some Elton John, because I'm not going to play Billy Joel in front of Billy Joel. Forget <laughs> it. So I'm, I'm like. So, you know, he's like, cool. And then he requested some Jerry Lee Lewis. So I did it for him. And I totally hammed it up. And I was you know, on my knees and playing with my feet and jumping on the piano and off the piano. And he loved it. And he was just hanging out. And I was just trying to keep my composure as best I could. And everyone in the piano bar was just freaking out that he was there, period. We had a secret going that he was coming in. We didn't want people to know, but they found out. So we walked in right next to each other. And you can imagine how the crowd reacted. It was nuts, right? And the piano players' yeah. jaws hit the ground because they didn't know. This piano bar, there were two teams of two players. So two guys would go on and play, and then the other two guys were on break, and then it would switch. When I came to work, the first guys were doing their sets. They had no idea Billy Joel was coming. So when I walked in with Billy Joel, they freaked out. The whole place freaked out. I remember I leaned over to Billy and I said, hey, just so you know, they're not screaming for you. They're screaming for me. He patted <laughs> me on great. the back and laughed and nodded his head. <laughs> Still can't believe I said it, but I did. So, yeah, he watched me for a while, and then he wound up getting on the piano across from me. And Max came up to me in the middle of my set as I'm trying not even to look at Billy. you know. And he said, hey, would you want Billy to get on the other piano and jam with you? I'm like, uh-huh. So uh, he said, do you know a uh, little help from my friends? I'm like, yes, I do. So we went mm -hmm. into it, and we were trading off verses and singing harmonies, and it was, I'm like, is this happening to me? Like, seriously, uh -huh. is this happening? It was amazing. Then we did an Elvis tune after that, and then by this point, the whole casino knew yeah. what was going on. So this little piano bar in the casino was suddenly, it was, everything was starting to cave in, and there were a dozen security guards around us, but still, it, it was like pretty soon it was going to be a riot. So we finished the Elvis song. Uh, Billy runs up to me and he gives me a hug. He says, great to meet you, kid. I got to go. I was already at the point where you can kill mm -hmm. me now and life is good. And I didn't know if I'd ever see him again. I had no idea. But sure. it just kind of went from there. So Billy was in town. He was in town a couple days early for a concert. I don't know if it was a Wednesday and his shows were on Friday and Saturday. But I got invited to the shows and I got invited backstage and got to hang out. And he was just, he was awesome. And I remember that first time. I was playing in front of him. Max was wanting me to play original songs. 
And I'm like, <laughs> okay. So I did. And then after one of the concerts, Billy was like, I like your song. I like your song. And then he started giving me songwriting advice. I'm like, I can't believe this is happening. Wow. My song was in the key of B flat. He's like, yeah, you know, sometimes when I'm in the key of B flat, and I don't know if you guys are musicians or not, if you know what the relative minor is. Okay, mm -hmm. so you are, right? So he's like, sometimes when I'm in the key of B flat, I like to pretend that I'm writing in the key of G minor. I'm like, Billy Joel's giving me like this awesome. I wanted to start taking notes. Oh, sure. I'll never forget that. And ever since then, if I'm writing something in the key of B flat, I'm like, okay, well, if I was here, what would I be doing? You know, that was just the beginning of, of a great relationship. And he's just been, he's been so nice to me ever since. So That's Billy right. asked Tommy Burns, and I know you guys know Tommy. <laughs> yeah. uh, Billy asked Tommy to put the Moving Out band together. Because at first, they didn't know if the dancers were going to sing or if the characters were going to sing the songs. I mean, that's how a lot of Broadway shows are. Right. And Tommy saw that and he's like, listen, if you want Billy to like this, this needs to be a rock and roll band like it would be if you were seeing a Billy concert. We need a piano man. We need someone to, to literally be the narrator through the songs. And Billy agreed, but Tommy was the one who was pushing it more at first. Billy at first was, he was involved, but he wasn't that involved. Tommy said, mm. well, Kavanaugh is the guy. Because I met Tommy that same week, and Billy agreed. But I still had to win over Twyla Tharp. I had never met Twyla. I'd never met the Needlelanders, the producers. And sure. there were other guys that I thought were great that, for whatever reason, Twyla didn't go for it. You know, it's, it's one of those great... Actually, there were a bunch of guys that were tremendous. Tremendous. Yeah. But Billy liked me, so that was a good place to start. It went from there. So I, I flew to New York, and I auditioned. Ironically, separately, I was working with Phil Ramone at the same time. Really? Some of my original okay. material. That was also through Max. Max made that happen. Once, mm -hmm. once I became friends with Max, all kinds of things started to happen. And Max, sure. to this day, is a, is a great, great friend of mine. Um, so I was working with Phil on my original stuff, and... The moving out thing was happening. I flew to New York and I met Twyla and I met all the producers and that went great. And then we did our workshop, which was 13 days after 9-11. So it was a crazy time in New York. I thought for sure they were going to cancel the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no mm -hmm. way, we're going forward. And I, and I was so impressed with the spirit and the courage of New Yorkers. I just, I was blown away. So we went ahead with the workshop and it was great. And I was freaking out playing these songs in front of Billy. I had to play Angry Young Man in front of Billy. Are you kidding me? You know? Right. And you know, I didn't sleep for a week. And I remember before the workshop, he comes up to me, gives me a hug. He's like, hey, Michael, relax, man. He's like, mistakes are cool. He's like, sometimes when I'm writing songs, I make a mistake. It's the, it's the best thing I do. So I'm getting through all the songs. We get to Uptown Girl and we're singing Uptown Girl and I immediately go into the wrong verse. So I'm like singing, you know, high class toys and, and the guys are singing whatever, hot blood can, right? It, right. It's, yeah. And I look over at Billy and he's like, hey! <laughs> he points at me. And I actually, re I relaxed. I totally relaxed. I laughed back and that was cool. And, and then since then, he came to see me in so many performances, obviously on Broadway. Mm -hmm. I really learned to relax. Mm -hmm. And he saw me on my best nights and he saw me on my not so best nights because sure. it was a grind. Sure. It was six nights a week, man. It was a mm -hmm. tough gig it was it was the best thing that ever happened to me you know but it was sure. tough it was a tough gig. yeah so those workshops you mentioned what was the setting was it at the theater was it just in a rehearsal space that you were set up how did that come about it was at sony oh, okay. studios the exact same spot where they had the the telethon for the 9-11 thing it exact same spot first they were going to have me like did you guys see the show i did actually yeah okay so at first they were going to have me lower they were gonna have the band on the bridge they were gonna have me lower and i was gonna be on this moving piano that kind of came in and out that changed so they were they yeah. were pushing the piano around and i was kind of in the center i even had a few dialogue lines originally until they decided to not have any dialogue the set list was a little different we were doing songs like running on ice and, and stuff like that we weren't doing still rock and roll to me at the time there were a few other differences the characters were different like uh, liz parkinson who wanted to play in brenda her character was virginia originally and oh, then no. Brenda was a separate character so you had Brenda and Eddie and then you had Virginia and Tony Anthony who works at the grocery store they were the other couple and then they decided to get rid of the Virginia character and make Brenda Brenda and Eddie obviously are are together at the beginning of the show we do scenes from Italian restaurant and then by the mm -hmm. end of the song they break up right and right. they're you know there's this going on <laughs> and Eddie and Tony Anthony they're best friends best friends since childhood but then Brenda and Anthony start hooking up, which causes tension between Eddie and, and Anthony, which was a good part of the story. 
And then James is like their little buddy who's like their third best friend. The three of them are inseparable. And then they all go to the war, which was during the We Didn't Start the Fire scene, which is like this crazy Marilyn Manson version of We Didn't Start the Fire. I'm sure you remember. It really is. And James dies. James dies in the war. That's a heavy-duty moment. And then if you remember when we do Goodnight Saigon in the second act, they're remembering back. It's right after the Captain Jack scene where Eddie is like completely strung Mm -hmm. out. James kind of comes back to life, but it's in his memory, right? So he's all... He's all bloody and and he comes back to life and dances and it was it was amazing. Like there was so much going on in that show. So many people would say to me, "Man, I just watched the band and I looked down at the stage. I had no idea what was going yeah. on." Mm-hmm. And that was a challenging part of the show, right? Because so many people wanted to watch the band because the band right. was smoking, but there was a story going on down there. So the people that loved the show the most were ones that saw it multiple times. The first time they'd come, they'd either watch the band or they watch the dancers. And they would never really get the full thing. Because even though there was a story going on below me, I was performing full out, right? I was, some people told me I did it a little too much, but I couldn't help myself. (laughs) (laughs) So there was a lot going on in that show. There was. It was not simple little happy story where we just play Uptown Girl and still rock and roll to me and and it's just a fun doo-wop. It wasn't that. It was deep. It was a deep story. I remember because I watched clips of it and there's, a, I think, a YouTube video or two floating around. And Bootlegs, yeah. It's, it's one of those shows for sure that you see so many different things the more you watch it. You're like, oh, I didn't pick up on this bit of the story or, you know, the arrangements and things like that. Oh, yeah. There were there was so much going on. And there were times <laughs> that the band would get, we, we'd get put in the dark for little moments of the show. And the crazy <laughs> stuff that went on during that show. You know, when you get guys like Tommy Burns, anything is possible. That's all I could tell you. Oh my God. <laughs> there were shows that literally the whole band, their whole goal, the whole show was to make me laugh. And I was tough. I'd be singing I Love These Days, you know. This is like a serious moment of the show. Right. And those guys would be doing anything they could. Anything they could to make me <laughs> laugh. Stuff that doesn't belong on a Broadway stage. Right. That's what happens when you take a touring band and bring them on the Broadway stage. No doubt. <laughs> None of these guys were Broadway cats. None of them. And that was part of the beauty of it. I think that's what gave the music that oomph. Oh, it was balls to the walls, man. Nobody was holding back. I mean, Chuck Berge, he's a slammer. He was playing with the Rainbow. He was playing with Meatloaf, Blue Oyster Cold, Greg Smith, Alice Cooper. I I tell Greg all the time, he would be playing just the way you are. But if you looked at a picture of him playing just the way you are, he looked like he was playing Megadeth. But it was perfect. His bass is butter, man. It's butter. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would tell them, he'd be like, yeah, that's my ballad stance. How close did you guys have to follow charts? Was it more of a rock band sort of thing where you learned the songs and did it? Or you know, was there a lot of close following on that stuff? There were no charts. We, we, we were playing it. Now, I, the horn players played charts, mm-hmm. obviously, because you know, mm-hmm. they, they play as a section. It was a rock and roll band that would come together just as if they were going to go on tour. Yeah. Our musical director's name was Stuart Molina. And the band leader was Tommy, and the two of them worked together, and it was a really a great marriage of ideas there. Stuart is a conductor. Like, I work with Stuart. He's with the Harrisburg Symphony, and uh, I'm going to be working with him with the uh, Greensboro Symphony. Stuart, especially because a lot of Billy Joel's classical material from Fantasies and Delusions was also brought into the show, and some of it was orchestrated, and Stuart would do that. He's a genius. But Tommy would bring it back to rock and roll. I'll never forget, we were doing a rehearsal with the dancers, we were going to start the song, and somebody was like, five, six, seven, eight. And Tommy's like, stop right there. <laughs> no one in rock and roll starts five, six, seven, eight. No way. It's one, two, right. three, four. <laughs> so the two of them together uh, worked out some really great stuff. David Rosenthal also was a big part of it with all the sound effects and just getting everything put together. We rehearsed in a room. You know, we were at SIR for a couple of weeks. And we would be, when subs would come in, most of our subs were killer. I mean, most of them were guys like Andy York, who's been playing with John Mellencamp for years, mm-hmm. or we would get Chasm Sultan, you know, uh, we would get these incredible guys, but sometimes they would have to bring in union guys and they would read the chart and it would be, you would take like, so we were a 10 piece band. You would have nine rockers and one guy who kind of sounded like the wedding band guy. Not mm-hmm. that he wasn't amazingly talented, but it just didn't have that same. A different school of playing. Yeah. yeah. So fortunately all of our drummers were rock guys. Chuck, it was Mike Sorrentino, Joe Bergamini. These guys are slammers. And the bass players were pretty much all that way too. And the guitar players, for the most part. There were a couple of guitar players that were incredible readers, but the force was always there. You know, the rhythm section was always there. So it never felt like this, um, 
you know, cruise ship band. Nothing against cruise ship bands. I know some no. amazing cruise ship bands, but <laughs> for sure, yeah, it had the drive that it needed to have. I mean, that show needed it. Coming from more of the music world, did you think at all as an actor when you were doing it, or did you kind of remain as a piano player as you would perform as if you were center stage? I really didn't think about it as an actor. I, yeah. I, you know, I mean, yeah. I, I guess I was the narrator through song. I mean, I was animated. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like a songs like "Angry Young Man," I'd have my hands out like this, and I'd be doing all these motions, but that's still what I do now, right? right? So, you know, they had to label me as an actor because they can't label you as anything else when it comes to Tony nominations, which I think is mm. weird. Like, I think the Tony should have a Best Singer Award and a Best Dancer Award. They don't have either one of those. Everything is actor and actress, and there's mm -hmm. so much more to Broadway than that, right? Agreed. Yeah. yeah. I was thrilled to get nominated. I'm like, oh, I'm an actor? Okay. I mean, I knew <laughs> they were calling me an actor because I had to join Actors' Equity. And originally mm -hmm. at the workshop when I had some dialogue lines, I was like, okay, that's cool. And I remember when I got the Tony nomination, I was getting calls for all these acting roles. I was getting calls for all these movie of the week things on CBS. And I kind of figured out quickly, like I would look at these scripts. I'm like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> right. I'm just, I think I could act, but it just mm -hmm. never really was something I wanted to do. I did a lot of voice acting stuff. Like it was fun. I was doing cartoons for the Disney Channel and stuff like that. That was more fun. They would have guests every week, so I would do it, and then Betty White would do it, and then one of the lands from NSYNC would do it, and stuff like that was fun, you know. But uh, I felt like a rock and roll guy on Broadway. That's what right. that's what I felt like the whole time. Did you feel like you had to be Billy, or that you were allowed to be yourself, or were you somewhere in between? Being that it was a Broadway production, not just a stage. It was somewhere in between. Like, I don't think naturally my voice, like if you talk to me and you talk to Billy, our voices don't sound alike at all. Now, when I sing some of his songs, you know, some of the phrasing and the inflections kind of come out the way I listened to him my whole life because I'm such a big fan. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, I mean, I remember Billy's mom, because Billy and I never really thought we sounded that much alike. And Billy was totally cool with that. But Billy's mom was like, I can't tell you two apart. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Billy and I started laughing. It was at the moving out opening night party. So a lot of people said that, right? There's times when I'll, I'll sing a line, I'm like, okay, that kind of sounds like Billy. But it's never something I'm really trying to do. It's just the music is such a part of me, you know, that it just, that happens. But then again, when Alexa came to see the show, and I was so nervous when Alexa was there. I mean, at the time she was like, I don't know, 16. But I don't know why. I knew she was a musician, and I, and I just was thinking maybe she's going to be like, who's this guy who thinks he could sing my dad's song? But she was such a sweetheart. She gave me the biggest hug. She's like, you made those songs your own. I love the way you do them. And I was like, oh. And she yeah. came to the show a lot, too. She, she came a lot with her friends and stuff. Anytime you do a gig like that, you're going to get pigeonholed a little bit, right? It's just going to mm -hmm. happen. Like, I was working on my original music with Phil Ramone at the time. Once I got the moving out gig, it kind of everything just kind of went there. That's cool. Life is good, man. That's kind of, like you said, standard when, you know, that kind of situation happens. <laughs> what a great problem to have. <laughs> exactly right. My, my life is forever different because of it. This would actually make you our second guest this year, actually, that just dropped casually the fact that they worked with Phil Ramone. Do you have any stories or memories of working with Phil that you could share? He would get the right people in the room. That was the magic of Phil. He would get the right people in the room. He wasn't overpowering. Now, I heard stories of Phil when he was younger that he would throw tantrums or he did he was not like that at all i remember it was it was me it was a guy named sean pelton on drums who uh plays for saturday night live oh yeah it was neil jason who was just bass player uh jeff murnoff on guitar and he was letting us feel things out and i, I wrote this one song called dig in i originally was thinking i wanted it to be just piano and vocal like just a stripped down and i remember saying that to phil over the talk back i'm like phil you know, some people think this song is cool when it's just me and a piano, and he gets a talk back. Well, F them. <laughs> you know? And uh, it was so funny. Like, Phil, he wouldn't say a lot of things, but when he said them, it was major. Like, I remember talking to Phil about some of the amazing, like, like the drum part to me for Just The Way You Are, to me, is so interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Like, right. the kicks on two and four. That was Phil. Like, Phil comes up with parts like that. Or I'm sure you've heard Billy tell the story about the, the beginning of The Stranger where he whistles. Have you heard him talk about that? Oh, yeah. And he's like, that's the instrument. <laughs> you know, I remember Billy told us that story backstage. He's like, yeah, I want some sort of instrument. And Phil <laughs> was like, hit the talkback button. Well, what's wrong with that? You know, with his whistle. Right. And he was talking about 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, which he produced in that amazing <laughs> drum groove that we all know. And he said Steve Gadd was just warming up. And Phil was the one who realized that's got to go in this song. He said, this one right here, they hadn't played the song yet. So Phil was a genius at taking those pieces and putting them together, doing things that we might not have necessarily thought of. One of my songs, 
he came up with a key change out of the blue that like was such a left turn, mm-hmm. but it was awesome. Mm-hmm. Like I'd never yeah. would have thought of that in a million years. He was a sweetheart. He was so nice. And honestly, I felt kind of bad because we were trying to do something. I mean, he was totally behind me. I mean, he, he produced four songs for me. He didn't charge me a cent. It was crazy, right? I wow. mean, and he was so behind it. But as soon as the moving out train started, I was gone. And, and honestly, I was so exhausted from that show all the time. I didn't have the energy to really do anything else. Sure. Yeah. So I could tell he was a little bummed that I didn't pursue my own career a little more. And looking mm-hmm. back at it, I don't regret it because I've learned the older I get, I'm a family guy. Like when I started on Broadway, I had one kid and I had a second one while we were on Broadway, been married a long time. I don't want to get on a bus for a year. I just, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. It's a grind. It's it's a grind. And obviously you, you've done it, right? So mm-hmm. I want to come home and that's why I lived in Bergen County. I want to have a backyard. I want my kids to play. I, I wanted all that stuff. And Broadway was great for that because it was, I'd go to work and I'd come home. Since then, you know, I travel, I certain well, not this last year, but not counting 2020, I travel certainly more than I did, a lot more, but it's little little shots. I'll go off for three days, come home for a week, mm-hmm. two days, home mm-hmm. for a week, and then maybe I'll be out for six days, and then I'm home for two weeks. Because after moving out, I started doing you know a lot of uh, symphony shows, which is a big part of my life now, which is pretty amazing. We'll get to those in a little bit. I uh, want to jump back into moving out for a second. To the point where you were saying that you know it was kind of like just a job like that where you could come in at a certain time, leave at a certain time on Broadway. That was also was something like 1,300 performances that you had done of moving out? I didn't do all of them. I probably did about 1,000 of them. But that's what the show did. Right, okay. Right. Sometimes people okay. write down that I did that many, and I'm like, no, no, I didn't do them all. I mean, mm-hmm. Wade Preston did probably uh, 25% of them. Or mm-hmm. Well, I did six, and then he did two, and then the last couple of years I did five, and then he did three. So, yeah, he probably did about 25% of them, and he was awesome. Something I never really thought about. If a show's on for that long, do you guys just start scheduling time off? Well, the first year was tough because all they had was me and Wade. They had no one else. I mean, normally any character or dancer on Broadway, they're they're at least five people deep. Okay. You know, that way okay. if two people get sick, if somebody gets hurt, if whatever – they had sure. me and Wade, and that was it. And they needed both of us just to get through eight shows because neither one of us was going to do it eight times. No, It was yeah. hard enough to do six. So I remember Wade one time had to do all eight. I was a year in, and I said, listen, I, I got to go on vacation. I'm going to lose my mind. So I went on vacation, and Wade did all eight. And it was tough, but he did it. We would have Wednesdays and Saturdays where there were two shows in a day. I never wanted to do doubles, but sometimes I had to. And sometimes mm-hmm. Wade and I would get a cold at the same time because you have a cold, right? Hachoo! And then you're playing your piano and then the other guy plays it. Yeah. And, yeah. and the road crew guys are like, oh, yeah, we disinfected it. No, they didn't. We always got sick at the same time. So it was really tough when there were two of us. Now, after about a year when they started working on the tour, they brought in more guys. And then that made it easier, especially before the tour went out. It was great. We had like five of us. And then mm-hmm. once the tour went out, mm-hmm. there were still more than we had, but there wasn't enough. And there were guys that I thought were great that for whatever reason they didn't want to use. So I have no idea. So what was it like then? I mean, you were doing piano bars, you were out in Vegas, you were playing since you were you know, gigging since you were 12. Was it very different getting on a Broadway stage and grinding it out that much? Very different. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> when you're playing in a, in a bar or a lounge, you know, the old saying is, the more you drink, the better we sound, right? I mean, that's, that's the old <laughs> saying. You know, things can be loose, right? I always took my performing seriously. No, when you step on a Broadway stage, it's a different deal. Everything matters. Everything matters. The level of intensity is 10 times. Were you prepared for that either before or after the workshops? I think I was somewhat prepared. I mean, you're never fully prepared until you get in the game, right? I ramped up as I needed to. You know, the more rehearsals we did and we started doing tech rehearsals and dress rehearsals, and then we would be doing a rehearsal and there'd be famous people that were invited to the rehearsal. And the more stuff like that that happened kind of got me ready. But opening night was still, and even after we did previews, you know, we did previews in Chicago for three months, and then we did previews in New York for four weeks. But something happened opening night. It was different. So opening night was like the last, the last stage of me being ready. I, I think it took that long for me to fully be ready. How did it feel as far as your positioning on the stage in the rock world? You know, you've got 
closer physical proximity with the audience playing up on the catwalk. Did it feel different being a little more removed, but still visible? It was different. Yeah, everything about it was different. From what you remember, it was a travelator, so it would move forward. So there were times that we would come forward and then we would come down and we'd get pretty close, right? That's right. And then we would go up and we would go back. And the funny thing is, is I would know when the travelator was going to move. I would have to brace my core, right? Because I have one foot on the sustain pedal if I'm playing, you know, or whatever, right? Right. So I would have to brace myself to move. Sometimes the union guys downstairs were like playing Madden football and they'd have to hit their button and they would hit it like 30 seconds late. So I'd be like here and I'm waiting for it to move and it's not moving. I'm like, oh. So now I don't know what's going to happen so that I'd be like, a bottle of white. It would move and I would almost fall off. That happened more often than it should have, to be honest with you. Uh, It was different. Mm -hmm. When the travelator worked right, it was cool. There were times that thing would get bumpy. It was on tracks, right? So it was, right. it was like a bridge that would go up and down and it had wheels and it was on tracks and it would move forward. Well, if somebody dropped something on the tracks, it would run over it and literally right. the whole pad would be. So that whole thing was a different experience. Yeah, it was different. Billy had been known over the years because they've always been at the forefront of moving components on stage. And there's always that risk that something's just not going to go. I remember total spinal tap moment. One of the tours, I think it might've been the River of Dreams tour, Liberty. <laughs> they started the show with everything under the stage. So Liberty started underneath and he would rise up. (laughs) Well, hydraulics were not working that show. (laughs) So he spent the first half of No Man's Land under the stage. You just see his hands. You know, it's funny. uh, And I'm not trying to be a name dropper here, but Garth Brooks told me a very similar story. I did Steve Wynn's wedding years ago here in Vegas when he got married. And and I did the band with my guys. and, And Garth Brooks was also on the gig. And he told me he bought this hydraulic system from John Bon Jovi to come rise out of the stage. He's like, John Bon Jovi was a user anymore. He's like, well, John Bon Jovi weighs 150 pounds soaking wet. He's like, right. me, I'm 250. So at the beginning of the show, he said the thing was trying to lift him. And he couldn't. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> but one of the things that's so lovable about Garth is that he will totally rip on himself. He's, he's amazing. Real quick about the moving out crowds. I don't really recall when I was there, but did you feel the crowds were the Broadway crowds? The Billy crowds are kind of a hybrid. It was a hybrid, yeah. There were nights when I could tell it was a Billy crowd, and there were nights I could tell that was more of a Broadway crowd. The Billy crowds were more, you know, and the Broadway crowds were more studying the dancers and the story, and they were more, I would say normally it was it was a split. Normally yeah. it was a split, but then there were some shows that I could tell went one way or the other by the oh, energy pretty much. And they were staring right at us. I mean, the Billy crowds pretty much were looking at us the whole time. You know, it was like a rock concert. <laughs> yeah. And then the sure. Broadway crowds were, were really trying to study the story and follow along. Were you able to adjust your performance at all within the confines of a Broadway production when you could tell the audiences were different? I felt like my job was still pretty much the same. I gave it everything I had every time I was up there. I still wanted to sing with the same drive. Like, I never held back. <laughs> Probably yeah. should have a little bit, but man... Ay, ay, ay. I never held back. It didn't matter if it was a Sunday matinee or if it was a Saturday night. I've always felt like my job was the same to just drive the music because the music was the force to me, you know, and, and no disrespect to Twyla because she's a genius. She is, but it had to just have that force. So I, I felt like no matter who was watching, I felt like my job was the same. Playing a thousand shows, anybody who plays a thousand shows, at least in the rock world or, you know, lounges, bars, stadiums, whatever, you know, those songs are going to evolve a little over time. Did that happen at all with moving out of being on Broadway? Were you more locked in or did things move around? It was very locked in. I think things probably still moved around a little bit. Towards the end of the run, I, I remember somebody playing the, the cast album and I was like, oh, that was a different tempo or, you know, I don't remember yeah. particularly what it was. I mean, things are going to evolve a little bit. I would say it evolved in a very locked in way, if that makes any sense. Like if one mm. of us moved, all of us moved. The dancers always want stuff faster. They always mm. want stuff really? faster because they got, oh yeah, they got to hold people in the air. They got to throw people and, and the faster <laughs> it is, I mean, within reason, right? The faster yeah. it is, the more they can get through it they would lift these girls up in some of these songs. I remember just the way you are. My friend, Ben, he was a character, James, he would have to lift up. Her name was Meg. She was doing the role for the first few months of Judy. Judy was another character. She was like the woman of steel. I mean, she was like Wonder Woman. So she was thin as can be, but she was 
freaking heavy. So Ben would be like, can you please speed up a little bit? So things like that would happen, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But in general, it was pretty small. After moving out, you now do some shows with orchestras? We closed uh, the very, very end of 2005. And honestly, uh-huh. by the end of Broadway, I was... I was somewhat exhausted, and I knew I wanted to move back out west here because I had family and stuff out here, and I like it out here. It's sunny all the time. I like it. So we moved out, and the first year, I was just kind of like, I want to chill. You know, Broadway was good, and, you know, saved a bunch of money, and sold my house in Bergen County, and, and bought one here that was twice the size, and it was still way less money, you know, so I, I wanted to <laughs> chill. So I was doing corporate dates, and I was doing a good amount of corporate gigs, uh, but I wasn't really eager to do anything new artistically for that whole first year. 2006 was fun. I pretty much slept in every day and did gigs in Hawaii. I mean, that was kind of like what I did. It was pretty good. And then in 2007, I really started saying, okay, I can do something here. I can't just... I mean, the corporate gigs are great, but I, I have to do something artistically. My agent was approached by the Indianapolis Symphony saw me on Broadway, they were interested in putting together a music of Billy's show, but they wanted me to star in it. That sounded amazing to me. I didn't really know how it worked. I had one experience performing with the symphony. It was the New York Pops, and it was at Carnegie Hall. So the first time I ever played with the symphony, it was at Carnegie Hall, which is quite a way to get broken in. But I was yeah. one of many performers that night. But I knew as soon as I did it, I'm like, this is the most amazing thing. When you hear a real orchestra around you, you never want to hear a Kurzweil ever again, I could tell you that. <laughs> uh, or any kind of synthesizer. Yeah. So they approached us and we worked out a deal. It was great. We did a week of shows there and they let me keep the charts. And that's a big deal. To get a show orchestrated is very, very, very expensive. To have mm-hmm. it written for, you know, 65 musicians. So they let me keep the charts and we started touring with that back in 2008. And we still do. We've been with everyone from, you know, the National Symphony at Kennedy Center, the Boston Pops, numerous times, all the way to Malaysia, all over the world. After that, I launched the Music of Elton John show. And then after that, I launched a singer-songwriter show, which is like Paul Simon, James Taylor, Neil Diamond, that stuff. The whole symphony world has kind of been my next step after Broadway. I'm not going to say it's a higher step, but it's, it's kind of a level playing field. Again, mm-hmm. it's a different level of intensity from playing at the the corner bar for sure so how was it going from broadway to an orchestra what was the same or what was different about those experiences the thing that was the same was the level of intensity the level of focus the level of detail that was kind of the same what was different was the balls to the walls that we were in moving out the first time we did it got on stage with the symphony we were freaking a hundred times too loud and too ballsy you have to (laughs) I mean, literally, I think immediately that, you know, the string players wanted to stab us in the eyes with their bows. You know, we were immediately, it was too much. It was too much, you know. Fortunately, the first time we did it, we rehearsed for like three, four days with the symphony. And by the third day of rehearsal, we had it dialed in because we weren't trying to be this rock band with a backup symphony. It really integrated. And what was cool on a song like Pressure, you know, when you get to the, right, you get to that, it's very classical sounding. So when we would get to that part, we would stop, and the orchestra would completely take over on that part. And it was oh, cool. okay. amazing. It sounded like Beethoven, right? It was really yeah. cool. And then we would come back with, bro, you have to learn to... Mm. And, and the dynamic is really cool. But you have to understand when you're playing with a symphony, it's not balls to the walls all the time. There still are moments. But if you're balls mm-hmm. to the walls and the symphony is balls to the walls, you won't hear anything. It's, it's just going to sound like a... Like a box truck full of band instruments crashing into a wall, you know, it's gonna right. be yeah, too much. just just too much happening at once, too much, yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. So it sounds like it's almost like a question of balance between the two. Just um, yeah, you have to like it, kind of feel it's it out. Balance, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I guess in the back of my head, I assume well, there's that many uh, people in the symphony. You can play as loud as you want. You're not going to overpower them, but uh, it seems not to be the case. I wouldn't say we would overpower them because man, when those mm-hmm. freaking timpanis and horns start going, it'll take your head off. But uh-huh. those people are a lot more sensitive about their ears than, mm-hmm. I mean, we're all deaf oh, okay. now, right? I mean, we're, <laughs> I want to name my band Tinnitus. I'm going to rename it Tinnitus because like, <laughs> right. you know, like the tea's always ready. Like I can always hear the tea kettle, right? And <laughs> you guys know what that's like, I'm sure, but uh, yeah. or you hear a lot about it. I mean, in my band, I think there's only one of us <laughs> that don't have it <laughs> and it's coming for, for, our, for the last one. But 
I, they're very sensitive about their ears and they're probably smart. So even though they get loud, some are different than others. Sometimes, you know, my drummer will just look at his crash cymbal and they're like, you watch it. <laughs> you watch it. My drummer's name is John. I'm like, bro, you need to get the Nerf sticks, bro. But we work it out, you know, like by the time it comes through the system, you know, and I bring my sound engineer with me because he really understands both sides of it. He understands the rock side mm -hmm. and the symphonic side now mm -hmm. that he's been doing it for so long. And it's a big sound and it, and it drives when it needs to drive. And it can drive more in the house, but not as much on stage. You know, we, we don't bring big amps on stage. We do everything in ear because we learned that early that the orchestra players don't like that. They don't want to be next to a Marshall stack. <laughs> No. <laughs> I'm sure it gives you sound engineer a little more control too if everything's going. Yeah. Oh yeah, you know when we went to in ear, he was very happy. Yes, <laughs> all, all sound all sound engineers love in ear monitors, and we hate them at first. I had to go in ear for moving out. Um, mm -hmm. I had no choice, and I I hated it at first, but really? I got used to it. I got used to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean singing <laughs> with it is is different because you know unlike these things that are you know we can still kind of hear the room. They're they're implanted, so it's like going like this you know, like mm. plug in your ears. Mm -hmm. So you're so, you're so filled up with your own voice mm -hmm. already that you right. have to turn up everything else so loud just to overcome that. Now I use the in-ear monitors that have mm -hmm. mics on them. So I get the room back. So to me, that's the perfect balance, but it was, there it was an go. adjustment at first. For the first year, I only used one ear. It was actually Crystal Taliaferro came up to me and said, man, you better stop doing mm -hmm. that. You're going to go deaf in one ear. She said, right. You can't do that. You got to use them both. I'm like, all right. But I just, it took a while. It took a while. It's funny. Yeah, I think part of it too is you're used to doing it a certain way yeah. for so long. We just did an episode about the bridge tour uh, in 86. And that was the first tour where there were no amps or monitors on stage other than Liberty's drum monitor. Everything else was underneath the grates. And the band freaked out at first because, you know, they've never done that before. This is not how we do it. They're like, how's this going to work? But once they got used to it, they're like, oh, this is great. The stage is clean. It's perfect. Well, you know, yeah. Mark Rivera doesn't even, I mean, last I talked to him, he doesn't even use a monitor on stage. Where he stands, it's just kind of the perfect spot where he can hear the house mm -hmm. so well. It's quiet over there. Mm. And it's actually pretty quiet by Crystal, too. I was surprised. I stood next to her once on stage. You know, Billy's been nice enough to call me up a few times. It's not that loud up there. It's way louder <laughs> out in the audience. And it's funny because I'll see Tommy running around the stage, and I've seen him say this more than one time. Yeah. He'll talk to Annie. I could see him say, I can't hear shit. And then he laughs, you know, <laughs> and then he, he runs back. Tommy doesn't care. It was surprisingly not as loud on Billy's stage as I thought it would be. It's interesting, especially going from Luke to Chuck Berge, you'd think uh, with two slammers. But I guess it, when you have that big of a stage, that doesn't become an issue anymore. The big stage and the high ceiling, and it just echoes all over the place. Yeah, Chuck's a slammer for sure, man. <laughs> He's a slammer. Mm -hmm. I love him. <laughs> Michael, it's been such a treat getting to chat with you and learn about your experience. You know, I've seen the show, so it's it's been great to see the other side of the coin and some of the nuts and bolts of what you went through. Appreciate you guys having yeah. me. Now we take our time so nonchalant spend our nights so well again michael thank you so much for chatting with us such a treat i had seen moving out back in 2005 and was familiar a bit with the show but i certainly came away with a broader understanding and certainly a bigger appreciation for all the work that him and the entire production put into this and he's got a great memory and some fantastic stories so thanks again that was yeah. great yeah, a lot of fun. And uh, now, as usual, it's your turn. Who saw Moving Out? Who's got memories of it? Did anybody meet Michael uh, in between performances, after performances, walking into the theater with his cup of coffee? Did anybody realize or really think about at the time the person that was being Billy? What did you guys think of his performance? Drop us an email. Hit us up on the socials. Let us know. And that brings me to another point. We made a New Year's resolution this year that we were going to read fan mail on every episode and we were doing well for a couple episodes there and then the emails dried up and i have a theory that we started reading them and people got scared to email us anymore because they were like "Uh oh what are they just going to read it on the air like maybe i don't want them to so we want you to know that if you send us an email and we want to read it on the podcast we'll email you back first and we'll ask you if that's okay and you can always 
you know, if you don't want something red, or you want to make a quick change or two, totally cool with us. Every email you've heard, we've gone back and asked them first. Yeah, for sure. We uh, certainly respect your privacy. And if you just want to share some private thoughts and stories with us, we absolutely respect that. So things don't come into the inbox and automatically go out on the air. It's totally your discretion on whether you're comfortable with us reading something. We hope you are because it really does lead to some uh, fun, spirited conversations between us. Yeah, fire up that keyboard, man. Glasshousespod at gmail.com. Nope, <laughs> that's not it. <laughs> it's actually Glasshouse Podcast. Ah, yes, it is. So fire up that keyboard, glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. Is that why we haven't been getting any emails? No, we've been getting it right. <laughs> I promise you. Okay, all right. <laughs> Or find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Glasshouses, a Billy Joel podcast. And this is going to come as a complete surprise for our longtime listeners. If you listen to us on Apple Music, please leave us a positive review and a five-star rating. Every positive review and five-star rating tells Apple that we are a quality production and that they should put us in front of more people. It's a quick, easy, and free way to help support us. Absolutely. We're sitting at 20 right now, so we know there's a bunch of you out there who haven't done it yet. And that's cool. Yeah. I get it. But it really takes a quick second. I do it with all the podcasts I listen to with love because I know how much it helps. Uh, so just mm-hmm. do it real quick and it'll go a long way, I promise. And we'll be forever grateful. We got another great episode coming at you in two weeks. And two weeks after that, we'll pick up with part two of this series. Yeah, this is going to be so great with Young Kiju. Uh, again, who is a pianist on Fantasies and Delusions and also one of the arrangers. You're going to love this one as well. We've been so lucky to get some of these great conversations lately. We can't wait. So definitely stick around for part two. We think you'll love it. And we'll see you then. All right. We'll see you soon. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>